House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. We've got uh, Bill Thomas. Hello, Bill. Hello. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Well, we're, we seem to be doing, doing good. Right. Yeah, yeah. Things. Uh, it's been we a long day. Work on. We have to just work on getting Kevin out of his shell. Yeah, he, oh, he's shy. It, it, it's it's not work. You just have to say the right thing. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, just now. No, um, now, Bill. What we're going to talk about is um, the Colonial Parkway murders. Now. Maybe maybe describe what they were, and a few of the key elements of the crime uh, for anybody that hasn't heard of it yet. Sure. Well, the Colonial Parkway murders are uh, uh, a series of eight murders which took place near Williamsburg, Virginia, from 1986 to 1989, and the Colonial Parkway murders refer to four double homicides of couples, approximately one couple a year for, it's actually three years in a row, you know, from beginning to end. And uh, all of these crimes were committed in and around Lover's Lanes. Um, you, had, you had four couples. Uh, the first, a lesbian couple, my sister, Kathy Thomas, my younger sister, and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, uh, were murdered first, and then they were followed in sequence by three straight couples murdered under similar circumstances. And the basic circumstances, you, you think about the Williamsburg, Virginia area and this road called the Colonial Parkway, which is a 23-mile-long ribbon of national park. It connects these historic sites, Jamestown, uh, Yorktown, and a lot of people have gone to Colonial Williamsburg uh, on vacation or a class trip, that kind of thing. And... Uh, what happens is the, these couples have been murdered while parked, and mm. it appears that someone approaches the couples while they're parked, and um, the we can get into some detail here, but the the method of killing varies uh, a bit, but the the basic circumstances: couples, cars, uh, lovers' lanes, kind of in isolated rural, very pretty locations, um, no robbery, no sexual assault, limited sign of struggle. Um, so there's a pattern that it establishes itself. There's So far, there's nothing in the forensics, law enforcement tell us, that actually links the four double homicides in the Colonial Parkway murders. But the the basic circumstances are very similar. And when, I know when the last time I met with the FBI face-to-face, -face, they said to me, it was about a year and a half ago now, they said, Bill, what are the chances of four couples being killed over three years in this relatively compact area? Um, and again, we're not talking about a gigantic city here. You know, this is near Norfolk, Virginia, Hampton Roads area. But we're not talking about a major, major metropolitan area with... Um, uh, you know, 10 million people or something like that. So the the murders begin in October 1986 and then appear to end just about three years later. 
You know, if, if I can make a comment here, um, listening to what you sure. just said, if I didn't know who we were talking about, I would have to say that this is almost very identical to how the Zodiac started. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I, I think it. I think it is fair. People have likened the Colonial Parkway murders to to Zodiac. Um, yeah, I mean, interestingly, as a side, uh, the Zodiac, from my perspective, has actually been much higher profile than the Colonial mm-hmm. Parkway murders are. Still, I meet people every day that have never heard of the Colonial Parkway murders, and we'll be talking about the Colonial Parkway case at CrimeCon as well uh, in early May in Nashville. Um, so we'll see. Stephen and other folks down there, but a, a lot of people over the years have asked me if I thought that you know could there be any connection, and the I, you know you certainly you certainly can't rule it out, but it, it is it is somewhat similar in that you know you've got the the couples in cars and then someone approaches them, and then with relatively um, easy going I would say. Um, manages to take control of the couples. And, you know, some of the time we've talked about, you know, could this be two people, mm-hmm. you know, leader and follower kind of thing. But one of the questions has always been, how does one individual, let's say it's one person, how does one individual gain control over four couples um, who are, you know, young, healthy people, um, you know, for instance, my sister had martial arts training. She's a graduate of the United States Naval Academy with the second class of women in it. I would say that my sister Kathy was pretty fearless and in extremely good uh, physical condition, and I don't think she would have just rolled over right. for someone who, you know, was attempting to murder her and her girlfriend. Um, so, you know, one of the questions that, is always kicking around is, so how does one person gain control over these young people and then basically take them to their deaths? Hmm. Now, if, if, if I've read right to the, um, uh, both women, they were, they were fully closed, so there was no evidence of any sort of um, sexual assault or even a robbery involved. No, there's no sexual assault. And not only is there no robbery, there's, in several examples, wallets and purses are, are open. And wallets are sitting open with money in them. So whoever this individual, and let's just, I usually say he, uh, let's go with he for a minute. Um, whoever this is, you know, sexual assault is not their motivation and, and robbery is not their motivation. Well, that, that kind of leads, it doesn't, I mean, if it's not sexual assault and it's not robbery, it's usually someone you know. It's usually something that, um, uh, something personal. Uh, or that, that's just my third guess. Well, or, or it could be, you know, just, you know, sociopathic just for the sheer thrill of killing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny, I think most people go with the sociopath. Uh, idea in in conversation because these eight young people, the four sets, they don't we don't we can't find that through line here to connect all all eight of them all, all every of the four couples. So 
most of the time people talk about um, uh, a sociopath or some, something like that, and it seems to be much more about, about control and assertion of control and lashing out in anger. I know that different law enforcement uh, people, we've, this is both an FBI case because two of the cases actually took place on the Colonial Parkway, which is a national park and therefore federal property. And then two of the cases took place off the Colonial Parkway, although they're all referred to by that Parkway moniker. Um, and Virginia State Police handle those cases. But the investigators have, have looked at a lot of different things. You know, the possibility that the killer or killers could have known some of these individuals, but not all of them, um, that the, uh, they, they, may, they may be lashing out in, a, in kind of a serial killer way, you know, someone that has a difficulty with, uh, with romance or sex or even sin. You could make a case. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm, this is my necessarily, necessarily my approach, but you could make a case that these couples in, you know, parking in a car were engaged in sin uh, on some level. Um, it's, we're not sure if, this, if the fact that Kathy and Becky were a gay couple is significant, although it is. They are the first murder and law enforcement experts tell me the, the first case is usually the one where things start and start for a reason. And then, uh, but then, you know, you do make this transition to the three straight couples. And there, you know, over the years, there have been 150 persons of interest and, um, you know, a number of different uh, people have kind of risen to the top of the, of the pool of um, individuals they've looked at. But very frustratingly, here it is, it's 31 31 and a half years later, it never made an arrest. Um, it certainly looked hard at a lot of different people, but it, it, it definitely becomes a, a head-scratcher for the investigators and the families alike. I also noticed that the couples seem to have been um, attacked differently, like your sister and her girlfriend were, um, it looks like their wrists were tied um, and they were strangled, and their throats were slashed, as well as diesel fuel that was poured on the bodies, but it didn't ignite. And I see the second couple, they were shot, shot to death. Um, so it, it, it almost, do you, do you see that as maybe it was planned or not planned, how it was going to go down? Well, I personally think they were planned. Let's keep going down, going down that thread for okay. a second because it is one of the interest, really interesting things of the case. So the second couple are shot. Right. Um, David, no- David Nobling and Robin Edwards um, are shot. David, David is, they think, is shot in the shoulder uh, from a downward angle. They think he may have been running or may have break for it. And then he's uh, finished off with a kill shot to the head. And then Robin Edwards, his companion, is is shot in the head. Um, so we've moved now from knives, rope, and at least potentially fire, in Kathy and Becky's case, to uh, the use of a small caliber handgun in the second case, Nobling Edwards. And then the third example, we're completely lost, because um, on April 9th, 1988, 
a couple who are on a first date. Their names are uh, Keith Call and uh, Cassandra Haley. Uh, they're students at Chris- Christopher Newport University. They're on a first date, and they go missing. And they to this date, they still haven't been found. So actually, April 10th, 19... I'm sorry, April 10th, 2018 now, coming up, will mark the 30th anniversary of their disappearance. So they're never found. So I think it's a safe assumption to say that that Keith and Cassandra are gone, but how they died, we're not certain. The car that Keith was driving is found abandoned on the Colonial Parkway just a couple of miles away from a remarkably similar spot where my sister Kathy and Rebecca Dowski's car was found. Um, so Keith's car is found with articles of clothing inside, but we're not sure how they died. And then you move to the fourth murder, um, which is over Labor Day weekend, 1989, uh, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer disappear off I-64, which is a pretty major highway. Um, it goes down from Richmond down towards Virginia Beach in that way. Um, they uh, appear to have stopped at um, an eastbound rest area, um, and then they, they go missing. Oddly, Daniel's car is found on the opposite side of the divided highway, so on the other side of I-64. There's a mirror image uh, rest stop, and the car is found going westbound as if they were driving back in the direction of travel. They were headed to Virginia Beach, yet the car is found as if they were driving back up uh, to Amelia County, Virginia, where they had started out. And they go missing, and their bodies are found six weeks later, which now takes you up to mid-October 1989. And they're found under an electric blanket, which had been in Daniel's car, and Hunters find them. It's been six weeks, very, very wet fall. The bodies are really badly decomposed. And they actually had a difficult time determining cause of death, although ultimately the bones were sent to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington for additional examination, and they determined that they found uh, knife marks, mitt marks on the bones. Um, so now, now we're back to someone being probably killed by a knife. So this this part, when you look at the four uh, double homicides in sequence, it, it, it does vary. The law enforcement people tell me, the experts tell me, what they think happens is that he uses a gun to establish control mm-hmm. over the couple. And then, for example, we know that, that Kathy and Becky's wrists were bound. Um so they think he maybe he starts off with a gun, establishes control, finds a way to, to bind the couples, perhaps as one half of the couple tie up the other half, you know, that kind of thing, and then proceeds to, uh, to move towards something that's probably more intimate and brutal, which is, you know, perhaps using the knife. In the second example, the one we talked about with David Nobley and Robin Edwards, the thinking is, is that the situation degenerated quickly. Uh, David Nobling was 20, kind of a street-smart kid. He definitely knew his way around. Um, even the woman he was with, uh, Robin Edwards, even though she was 14 years old, she's quite young, she was, again, very savvy. 
they may have actually figured out that something bad was about to happen. So maybe they make a break for it in the early stages of whatever this interaction is. And so, and that's how they could have ended up being shot as opposed to being stabbed. Um, again, these are all, you, you know, the working theories that Virginia State Police and FBI investigators have developed over the years. And by the way, my understanding is we're behind, they're behind closed doors. They don't always agree. Well, let, let me put forth a theory. Just listening to, to what you have said, um, you know, uh, I'm the graphic one. I try to put everything together in my mind. And what I'm seeing is, sure. a socio- is a sociopath who is just starting. He's discovered himself, and he's discovering a method of killing that he prefers. Like you said, he's going to use a gun to establish, you know, superiority. Because, well, let's just look at today. You know, we're trying to ban guns because it's a sign of, you know, virality and superiority. And he's selecting victims that are easy. They're distracted. They're involved in, you know, romance or, you know, they're involved sexually, which is going to distract us. And plus, right. he's, he's staying near heavily trafficked areas. So there's going to be a constant supply of victims. I, you mentioned also, unless I'm mistaken, that they found some victims in an electric blanket. Did, did I mishear that? Yeah, they, uh, they, the, uh, the, the final couple, um, Anna Maria Phelps and, and Daniel Lauer, they were moving some items from their home down to Virginia Beach. And so they had a bunch of uh, clothing and item, you know, household items. And one of those items, which was used to cover the bodies, was this electric blanket that they were bringing with them. Um, okay. Now, you know, in this kind of fully packed Chevrolet Nova. Well, that's significant uh, to, to me, you know, because I, I've studied forensics. Um, do you think that maybe he wanted to enjoy those kills, so he wrapped them in an electric blanket to keep them warm and keep killing them over and over again? Well, it's funny. The, you know, the, the two bodies are laid out side by side off a logging road. It's about a mile as the crow flies. It's probably a mile and a half or more via highway. Um, it is interesting. He laid the two bodies, as I understand it, out side by side and then covered them with a blanket. And I'm not sure what the significance is there. But in, in, the, in, the, in the, the method of disposal, forgive me, that sounds a little more graphic than I mean it to be. No, but very, very even, even that, even, even that Even that varies. So just to recap, Kathy and Becky, uh, my, my sister and, and uh, Rebecca Dowski, are found in the back of my sister's 1980 Honda Civic. So Kathy's up in the way back in the trunk. And, you know, those, remember those older Hondas? They were fairly small. I mean, I, I spent a lot of fun hours bombing up and down the East <laughs> Coast with Kathy from our family's home in Massachusetts to Annapolis and other places. But Kathy's in the way back, and then Becky is in the back seat, kind of stretched out on a diagonal with her feet extended over towards the passenger side. In in the in the second example, um, David Nobley and Robin Edwards, their bodies are dumped in the river, 
uh, in the James River, and they're found three days later, in, again, in pretty rough shape, um, uh, partially clothed, and they've been floating in the water for, mm-hmm. for a couple of days. In the, in the third example, they disappear altogether. This is Cassandra Haley and, and Keith Call. They're the ones that go missing, which, by the way, again, they're right next to uh, a body of water, the York River. And then finally, uh, Anne Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer are the, are the two that are found in the woods, kind of lying side by side under a blanket. So three of the four are right next to major rivers, two next to the York River, one, the bodies are actually in the James River, um, and then the fourth couple are found in this kind of odd configuration under the blanket. Yeah. Well, trying to get inside the killer's head, though, I mean, keeping it near water is, to me, and maybe I betray myself a little bit here, but it's because it's easy cleanup. You know, right, right, I, right I, there I, is your running right. source of water. But yeah. the fourth, the yeah. fourth one, he he was perhaps, and this is just me again theorizing. You know, maybe he was getting a little, little more comfortable. You know, I've not been caught yet. I don't need to clean up so fast. You know, let me just keep these out for display for my own self gratification for a while. And you know, I'll, I'll yeah, them, you know, I'll cover them out of convenience. I, I think he may be onto something. And the the um, the rivers are actually used as a method of disposal. For example, in Kathy and Becky's example, they they are they're strangled with rope. Actually, a piece of the rope is actually embedded in the back of my sister's hair under, underneath her long red hair. They actually snipped the ends of the rope, and so there's a fragment of rope left. Um, he strangled them and then cut their throats from beyond ear to ear. Kathy was essentially decapitated. And then the, all of this killing, they believe, happens outside the car. Then he loads the bodies into the car and moves the car, and this is actually significant. I think in almost every example, he's moving the cars and he's staging, that's the word they use, Mm -hmm. staging the cars to create a certain impression, and I'll tell you more in a second. And then he moves the car, they believe, and makes this attempt to set the car on fire with diesel fuel. That in itself has always been very striking for me. In the very beginning, the FBI said, said, diesel fuel, or kerosene. Uh, later on now, in more recent years, they've said diesel fuel more often, although it's funny, sometimes I'll remind the detectives that their predecessors did also say kerosene. They've got the files, which have, there are 5,000 documents in Kathy and Becky's file alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but then finally, failing to set the car on fire, which is an odd little detail, who, who carries in it or has access to diesel fuel but doesn't understand the ignition properties of diesel. Right. I was going to say, one of my questions. Kerosene burns faster and hotter. Diesel fuel burns slower. Sure. And I remember from my days as a, as a Boy Scout, um, you know, gasoline, as we all know, it'll go up like that. Um, you have to be very careful because you know, even gas fumes will ignite. So it's funny. We're not sure if the diesel fuel is a mistake or he didn't realize that he was going to have to raise the temperature, uh, and, you know, which you usually do with pressure, like in a car engine, uh, of the diesel fuel. It will ultimately catch, they tell me, but it, it'll be a very smoky fire, um, and you might be able to get diesel started with, like, a newspaper torch inside the car. 
But, you know, there are, there are matches and cigarettes up in the flat area um, where near where the car was found, but the car fails to ignite, and then he makes an attempt to push the car over the edge down an embankment down into the York River, and the car gets caught in underbrush. So the nose of the Honda is almost touching the water, but it doesn't go into the water. But when you start looking at, at least in three of the four double homicides, there's either a successful or unsuccessful attempt to use the water as a way of disposing of at least some of the evidence. In the first example, he tries to roll the car down the hill. In the second example, David Oley and Robin Edwards, the couple that are shot, they end up, in, their bodies end up in the water. In the third example, with uh, Keith Collins and Sandra Haley, they're the ones that go missing, but their their car is found right next to the river, same river, York River it's called. <laughs> and then it's only the fourth example that, that they're found on the, on the land. And it's funny, there's a couple of odd details about the fourth uh, killing, that's Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer. Um, the law enforcement people tell me that they feel that there are things about the car that were staged as a taunt to law enforcement. Uh, for example, there was a very prominent placement right in the outside of a window of this 1964 Chevy Nova. I think tucked into the rubber on the outside of the window is a very large roach clip, the kind with a feather. Yes, you're taking it away right now. It's, yeah, it was very prominent though, and it's 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 not inside the car; it's outside the car. And so, when law enforcement found the Chevy, uh, you know, on the wrong side of the road, facing the wrong direction, um, at the rest stop, which is accessible, by the way, from the the other rest stops, you could just walk across the highway. Um, but it's placed very prominently in in the Detectives who worked the case said it just felt like it was it was kind of a, 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 a sort of an up yours quality to it. Um, and in several of these examples, the, I mentioned the staging of the cars. Um, clothing items are removed and left uh, in the car. Often the ignition keys are pretty accessible. Um, and they think that he, he may be trying to create certain impressions as if they've, uh, like, for instance, you know, the idea that, that, uh, that third couple, the couple that went missing, Colin Haley, might have gone skinny dipping, uh, in, in the York River. Although it's April, water temperatures are in the 40s, they're on a first date, um, the car is up kind of on a, a high point, there's on these little turnoffs on the Colonial Parkway, it's about probably 30 feet or more above the surface of the water on it. There's a very steep, rocky path, almost like a cliff, down to the water. And there are places within a few hundred yards where you would have had much easier access to even a little sandy beach area. And Keith called knew that Colonial Parkway very well. It's a place the kids would go to party and, and hang out. And at night, there's no street lights. It's completely dark and it was also very, very lightly patrolled by National Park Service rangers. Uh, so, you know, kids would go there to party. But if Keith Call was going to take this young lady from his class, Sandra Haley, 
immediately. First of all, the whole thing seems unlikely from the facts I just laid out. But even if he were going to do that, he wouldn't have done it from that point. But there seemed to be that the killer left articles of clothing and one of her shoes, for example. And it, 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 it all seems to be very carefully managed uh, by the killer. In the uh, and in David Nobley Robin Edwards killing David's pickup truck, was driving a Ford Ranger, is found with articles of clothing inside. The ignition switches in the accessory position. The radio is on. The windshield wipers are on the on the intermittent setting. Uh, it was kind of a cold, uh, misty, rainy night. Um, but you know, again, they think that these things are done very deliberately. Um, and well, I, I agree. David's truck. So he's trying to he's trying to to create recreate a uh, scene in yeah. his head. He's, yeah. he's, and, he's staging this like a like like a play or, or like a movie. He's creating something that he has seen in his head, and he's trying to put it out there in the public. Like, don't you see this? This is what I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah. And in, in several examples, the ignition keys are left in, in in prominent places, almost like he's hoping that somebody might come along and. Uh, like kids or something, maybe take the car or truck and drive it away, which again would create further confusion about where people ended up. Um, mm. And in, in almost every example, in almost every example, they think that he drove the car, um, the, the victim's car, and moved it, and then arranged it in these ways, and then left the car and probably returned to his vehicle. So the question begs to be asked here, you know, since we're both agreeing on this, and this is something I've been sharing off, offline with Al, where I'm seeing this go, is the did the BAU, you know, we've all seen criminal minds, and we think we know how they work. Did they look at this and see the same thing that we're seeing, and maybe perhaps look at fiery crashes where people died, or vehicles that were on fire and going into rivers to maybe find an avenue to find the, this killer using this, what you just told us? Well, one of the things the BAU came up with very early on, this is just when Kathy and Becky had been killed, the other couples hadn't, had not been murdered, was, and this becomes a through line throughout this entire investigation, I remember them saying, Two FBI agents meeting with my family at my parents' house up in Massachusetts, sitting at our dining room table, and they said to us, we believe your sister and Ms. Dowski were approached by an authority figure. And I stopped them, and I said, I'm sorry, we're confused. What's an authority figure? And there was a little bit of hemming and hawing. Um, and FBI people, as you know, are usually pretty polished, but I could tell they were struggling. To, they wanted to answer our question, but... The truth was, once we heard what they meant, they weren't terribly comfortable with the answer, and this has always made our partners in law enforcement very uncomfortable. When they said an authority figure, they mean that they thought that Kathy and Becky and later these other couples were being approached by someone who was in law enforcement or presenting as such. doesn't mean they were a real cop, but somebody in a, in a position of authority and you said something really interesting a few minutes ago, and I sort of smiled because, you know, for our listeners, 
uh, you know, you do have to picture yourself. I, I have to be a younger man than I am now with a girlfriend, you know, listening to music and maybe making out or whatever, and you're really not paying a lot of attention to what's going on around you. And it happened to me once or twice, you know, there's a rap on the window and there's a, somebody with a flashlight and... Right. You're you know, always looking out for the police out. or the MPs, in my case. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, maybe there's a few bluff buttons being reattached and, you know, you're a little embarrassed. <laughs> a but few. you're not... Yeah, it happened to me a couple of times. The, but if you think about it, and again, we're taking a you know uh, a, a scenario. I think a lot of people, if they ever had a driver's license, they can probably identify. But remember, when someone comes up on you and you're sitting in a car, all you're seeing are are you know typically high beams. You might see a police light, you might not, and then maybe somebody comes up to the car and that's on the car window and probably has a flashlight which they're shining in your eyes and they tell me that um, white middle class people which all eight of these folks are uh, will comply with direction if it appears to come from someone in law enforcement and remember that area that that uh, Williamsburg area there's a ton of military there my sister Kathy was a was a naval officer and there's also there's all of these different law enforcement agencies. There's uh, city and town cops. Uh, there the road itself, the Colonial Parkway itself, is actually patrolled by National Park Service Rangers, who at that point drove cop cars and didn't have SUVs. Um, and then there are federal law enforcement agencies, and then every single branch of the service has its own um, you know police force, if you will. And everybody uses the Colonial Parkway as a cut-through um, because it's got no light, and it's a great way to move from A to B. The speed limit is 45 miles an hour. It's designed to feel like an old-fashioned highway, you know, from back before the interstate system was built. And it was built by the National Park Service to give you that, you know, that sense of what the highway highways were like back before interstate. But, you know, cops don't have to drive. 45 miles an hour, they could drive 65 miles an hour and save a lot of time. Um, so a lot of different people uh, in law enforcement use the parkway. And one of the things that's kind of unique about uh, the parkway itself, where two of the four crimes happened, is it's very limited access. When I first went there, I realized, you know, once you're in on this road, you kind of can't get off. You have to go literally miles to the next exit, and there's usually a river on one side of the of the road. So I never thought about it until after Kathy and Becky had died, but it's this very odd limited access. Once you're in, you're in, and there's the next way out, maybe three or five miles down the road. So back to the idea of, of uh, an authority figure, these individuals are parked in these places that are known for romance and sexual activity. Um, and sometimes, you know, that would be a, these would be the kind of places you might go for a low-level drug deal. Um, and somebody rolls up on them while they're stopped and presents as law enforcement. Like I said, I'm not saying it's a cop, but it could be someone who's perceived to be a cop. I've also... Um 
heard and uh, in my reading I found that there's not only a, th a theory about a police officer or some sort of um, park service ranger or something like that, um, that um, some investigators believe um, the Parkway murders were committed by more than one perpetrator and they're working as a team. Right, right. Um, the, uh, one um, profile in particular um, from the Virginia State Police uh, had developed a theory that he thought that might be two people working as a team. Part of that, I think, is to address the idea of how does one individual gain control over eight healthy young people. Um, and the other is this, as you mentioned a moment ago, this, this kind of variance uh, in terms of the actual method of killing. Maybe they're experimenting or maybe they, maybe they are doing the leader follower thing or they're alternating, um, which, you know, in, this, in, in those examples, it almost begins to sound like a thrill killing, like these two, let's say these two guys are, are going out and getting jacked up and they decide, you know, tonight's the night. We're going to go out and um, and, and kill someone. Or even um, a right of There's also this, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's funny, I mean, there's all kinds of other bizarre theories, like, you know, the CIA has a training facility called Camp Perry, uh, P-E-A-R-Y, um, just up the road. And, you know, people have come up with all kinds of theories, like the CIA operatives, remember this is back in the 80s now, who are being trained at Camp Perry are leaving the facility and going out and running operations uh, on civilians. I, you know, I think you can tell from my tone of voice I'm not really buying into that. But um, <laughs> people have gone some really interesting places. Hmm. So how does it look now? Like you, you've talked about the investigation as uh, being split um, between the FBI and Virginia. Um, do you see it actually getting solved now, or, or where do you see it coming up? Well, it's been 31 years, but one of the areas where you know, we still have a lot of hope. Experts tell me they believe the Colonial Parkway murders are a solvable case. We have a lot of evidence, and one of the things about the advancement of time has been the the, the 31 years has afforded us the opportunity to have advances in, in forensics. You know, I have to remind people when I go out and speak at colleges and universities about this case, I have to remind, you, you know, uh, young folks that DNA wasn't even out of the lab at, in 1986 when the Colonial Parkway murders uh, happened. And even the advances we've seen in the last five years the refinement of um, of DNA testing and, for example, the introduction of this MVAC technology, M-VAC, um, that's the wet-dry-VAC system that they're using to crack cold cases. Instead of doing individual areas of uh, clothing or other pieces of evidence uh, with with the swabbing technique that we've all, we've all seen on them, uh, procedural shows, um, or, or cutting fibers or using the, the surgical tape, the MBAC allows them to run over an entire um, item 
from one side to the other and back and forth, almost like a like a, your dry cleaner would use, and end up with a lot more evidence. So we've been pushing the FBI and Virginia State Police to move forward with advanced forensics. One of the things I talk about, and I'm, I'm actually right, working on a book on the Colonial Parkway murders, one of the things I talk about in my book is that we've discovered the hard way that if you don't keep pressuring law enforcement to work your case, what happens is terrible things happen, as we know, every single week, every single month. The pressure on law enforcement investigators is to solve new cases, which are high profile and, you know, with a lot of visibility. And what happens for cold cases like ours is we keep getting pushed further and further back. And it wasn't until eight years ago when the FBI lost control of 78 highly graphic crime scene photos. They leaked out into the public and the families, including myself, found out about it. It occurred to me we could leverage the FBI's embarrassment about the crime scene photos being leaked. I'm talking about really graphic, horrific photos you would not want to have out in the public. And I certainly don't want pictures of my kid sister displayed in classrooms or in the World Wide Web um, in this gruesome way. But we did figure out that we could leverage the FBI's embarrassment about the crime scene photos to force, and I'll use that word force, to force the FBI to put resources back into our case. Because what happens, as I said, is, you know, with, with new crimes happening every single week and the, the caseload for investigators is incredible, I'll, I'll jump on my soapbox for a second here and say we as a country are not spending anywhere near enough on law enforcement um, at the federal, state, and local level. I, you know, someone who's lived this for 30 plus years now, we need to spend more money on on law enforcement and on forensics. But you you actually have to lobby and push, and maybe I push too hard in a few spots, but. What I, all I'm trying to do is move this case forward and figure out what happened to these eight young people. Hmm. Wow, what an uh, this is a very intriguing story. Um, yeah, now, I mean, where do you start? <laughs> yeah, so give out give out your contact information for listeners if you have any. That if people have anything they want to contribute, how would they do that? Sure. Oh well, the, one of the easiest ways to to find uh, us me. It's, um, if folks have Facebook, if they go to uh, Facebook and look for Colonial Parkway Murders on Facebook, uh, we have a very active Facebook page there. There's also two other Facebook pages that are run by other family members. Um, but I think in terms of activity, um, most people um, uh, can, can reach us there. And there are two administrators, myself and a writer researcher named Kristen Dilley, Kristen's in Virginia, and of course I live in, in Los Angeles, but um, they can reach us through the Facebook page. If they're curious about the case and want to learn more, if they, uh, if they Google Colonial Parkway murders, there's a tremendous amount of information out there. Our Wikipedia page, by the way, I, uh, you know, I've certainly seen some problems with Wikipedia over the years, but our Wikipedia page, we actually try to maintain and keep it up to date and accurate. So if they go to Wikipedia, for example, and look at Club of Parkway Murders, and then scroll down to the bottom of the page, um, there are dozens and dozens of links to 
stories that we've, you know, put out that cover um, different aspects of the Colonial Parkway murders. Um, and there, there's also a, a book out uh, that came out last year um, by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Uh, Blaine's written a number of true crime books, and uh, his daughter Victoria Hester is now his writing partner. And the book is called A Special Kind of Evil. And that's available on Amazon and in bookstores across the country. And that's a good summary of the Colonial Parkway murders. Uh, Blaine uh, approached me a couple of years ago. He was writing a story about the case for a British uh, true crime magazine, and we, we hit it off. And Blaine circled back with me after he wrote this very good piece, and he said, you know, my daughter and I are increasingly intrigued about the Colonial Parkway murders. What do you think about us writing a book? And I knew he'd written several other successful true crime books. And uh, it was, we were very excited. And it's, so a special kind of evil is a good overview. And then, uh, as a matter of fact, at CrimeCon um, in Nashville uh, in May, um, we're doing an expert panel on the Colonial Parkway murders. It'll be myself, um, Keith Call's sister, whose name is Joyce Call Canada, her, maid, her married name, and uh, Blaine Pardo. And then uh, a retired FBI special agent who's been helping us with the case, Maureen O'Connell, is, um, is also going to be on the panel. So we'll be talking about the case quite a bit. I think if people are curious about it, I think uh, uh, jumping into a search engine and looking for Colonial Parkway murders is, uh, is a good place to start. Well, great. We all and actually... It, on, and, and on the... I'm sorry, and on the Facebook page, of course, my contact is both all there. Okay, yeah, and we're going to have all that linked to our page as well. And uh, there we have it. Um, great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time and talking to us. Absolutely. I really appreciate your interest and, uh, and, and your questions, and I hope people are uh, made curious. And, you know, we welcome uh, people who have thoughts and observations and People will often approach us via the Facebook page and say, have you ever thought about? And sometimes we have and sometimes we haven't. And we're really more optimistic now in 2018 than we've ever been before that we can actually solve the colonial park rivers. Is it because of this you know, social interaction or is it just because the investigation is still moving forward? I mean, which is it? I think it's I think it's our strong sense is that the investigation continues to move forward and what we're getting back in terms of uh, advanced forensics and what we're hearing from uh, people who are you know in similar situations in their in their cases we're seeing um, some real breakthroughs on the forensic side um, and uh, you know so fingers crossed we're more optimistic now than, than we've ever been before. Awesome. Well, well again, Ooh. great. Thanks for, Thanks very much. Bill Hall's been our guest, and the Colonial Parkway murders the subject. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.